everyone had an Elvis story. When I was in seminary, I pastored a church in Memphis and pastored folks that, for the most part, grew up and lived their lives in Memphis. And everyone had an Elvis story. One lady sat behind him in the movie theater and Another man served with him in the army in his same troop. And I mean, every, everyone had some sort of Elvis sighting, some sort of Elvis story. Probably some of you may have uh, maybe some sort of Elvis story. But you and I know that even though Graceland is in Memphis and he lived in Memphis, did a lot of things in Memphis, we all know he's a Mississippi boy, right? Because where was Elvis born? Tupelo. He was born in Tupelo. And so we know that while the action happened in Memphis, that's where the folks go, that's Graceland, we know that he was born in Tupelo. Well, in a similar way, as we study the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, we see that the action happened in Jerusalem, the action happened in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, and in Capernaum and other areas. As a matter of fact, as we read the Gospel account, After Jesus is born in Bethlehem, there's not much said about Bethlehem at all after that account. Uh, The action happened in other places, yet Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And here's the question. Is there any significance to the fact that he was born in Bethlehem? Well, I think that there is. I'm taking three Sundays to show you the significance of the reality that Jesus Christ was born in the relatively insignificant village of Bethlehem. So keeping that in mind, I want you to turn with me to an Old Testament book, the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth. And we're going to begin reading in chapter 4. We're going to jump into the very end of a story. We'll catch up to speed in a moment about this story, but I want to show you some verses, the end of Ruth. Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. I preached this book years ago when we were uh, in the hardware store, uh, some of you remember that. It took me uh, several months to get through it, and it's a wonderful story. It's been so much fun this week getting reacquainted with this story and, and reminding myself of, of all of the, the, the great stuff that's in this text. So I'm excited to be back in Ruth today. So Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. I'd like to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. The Bible says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, that's Ruth's mother-in-law, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap, became his nurse, grandma taking care of her grandson. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful today for the reality of your presence. Lord, your word says that you you draw near, that you inhabit the praises of your people. 
And Lord, we're here for you. We're here to praise you, to magnify you, to glorify you. And so, Lord, in some way in which we can't fully comprehend or understand, you are here. You have drawn near, and we are grateful for your presence. And Lord, we, we just can't wait to see how you're going to work in our lives. So Lord, would you, by your Spirit, move in our midst, open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the truths of Scripture, and give us the wherewithal to obey, to respond to what we learn, to what we are shown. And Lord, I pray we'll leave this place transformed. And I pray again, Lord, that we would leave this place more in love with Jesus than when we walked in. So Lord, would you just cause your hand to rest upon us in these moments. We love you, we praise you, we exalt you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. This story that I just read to you, the ending of, is a story that took place in Bethlehem, the same village in which Jesus was born, the same town in which Jesus was born, Bethlehem, a a small uh, town about five to seven miles south-southwest of Jerusalem. We're going to see that there are some connections between some things that happened in this town and Jesus, who was born in the same town hundreds of years later. But I've got some good news for you this morning. My sermon is a two-point sermon. Not a three-point, two-point sermon. And so we might get done early today. You don't look convinced. You, you don't look convinced. We're going to work at it, all right? But a two-point sermon, and we're going to see the, the tie-ins here between Jesus and Bethlehem. The, the first point is simply this. A kinsman redeemer came from Bethlehem. A kinsman redeemer came from Bethlehem. He said, wait, what in the world is a kinsman redeemer? Well, I'm glad you asked. I want to back up now and kind of look at the story from the 30,000 foot level and kind of walk us through what happened to bring us to the passage we read in chapter 4. If you go back to the beginning of the book of Ruth, you find that there's a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi, and they are living in Bethlehem with their two sons. And a great famine comes to the land of Bethlehem. So they decide to leave Bethlehem and travel west to Moab to to try to find a job, to try to find uh, a place where crops could grow so they could could survive. And so they leave Bethlehem, their hometown. They go to Moab. And in Moab, disaster strikes this family. First of all, Naomi loses her husband, Elimelech. And her boys marry two Moabite women while living in that land. And shortly thereafter, both of her sons die. So now you have three widows. You have Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. Naomi decides after a time to return back to Bethlehem, to go back home. I mean, she lost everything in Moab. She's a broken woman, and she decides to return to Bethlehem. One daughter-in-law decides to stay in Moab. That's where she was from. But the other daughter-in-law had a, an interesting relationship with Naomi. God had, had, had knit Naomi's heart with this young lady's heart. And her name was Ruth. That's who the book is named after. And Ruth said to Naomi, where you go, I'll go. I'm going back with you. And so Naomi and Ruth, two widows, leave Moab, return back to Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem. And when they get to Bethlehem, they have to deal 
with the grim reality of learning how to subsist as widows. It was very difficult for widows in this day and time to have what they needed to survive. And so they came up with a plan. Ruth said to Naomi, I'm going to go out, I'm going to try to find a field, and I'm going to try to glean behind the harvester so that I can get some heads of grain so we can have some grain to provide for our our, 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 to provide for our needs so we can have some food to eat. And so Ruth leaves and she goes and she finds a field and she's gleaning behind the harvesters and she's getting grain, uh, some food for her and Naomi to eat. And she discovers that this field belongs to a, na- a man named Boaz. And Boaz is very kind to her. And so Ruth goes back home to Naomi. So I've got some good news. I've got some food for us to eat and also... I met the owner of the field. He was a nice man. His name was Boaz. And when Naomi hears the name Boaz, she gets excited. Wait, why would Naomi get so excited at the name of Boaz? Well, look there with me in Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2. Verse 19. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, Ruth, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And so... Naomi is excited that in God's providence, Ruth had gone to the field and met a man named Boaz who was a relative of Naomi's. And she even says, this Boaz could be our redeemer. Now what's she talking about when she mentions Boaz as a redeemer? Well, as we see the story unfold, we see that Naomi is referring to two Old Testament passages. She's referring to, first of all, the Old Testament, Old Testament passage of Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, which are the Old Testament laws of the Levir, which is the Latin word for uh, brother-in-law. We'll talk some more about that in a moment. And she's referring to Leviticus chapter 25, uh, verses 34 through 30, uh, 23 through 34, which is the passage about the Goel, or the Redeemer. So she's talking here about these two sets of laws and how they are combined Um, in anticipation of Boaz fulfilling what these laws refer to. So we could sum up these two passages by saying these are the laws, Deuteronomy and Leviticus, these are the laws of the kinsman redeemer. We learn about what a kinsman redeemer is by studying this passage and seeing how it unfolds in the book of Ruth. And so let me just sum up for you what the laws of the kinsman redeemer were all about. Look there in your notes. First of all, The responsibility of a kinsman redeemer was to protect family-owned land. Leviticus 25, verses 25 through 28. The Bible tells us that if family land is lost, the goel, the redeemer, the goel is the Hebrew word, was to come and buy back the land to keep it in the family. If you have family land, you know how precious it is to have that family land. Perhaps you have land in your family that's passed down from generation to generation. That's special to you. I understand that same in this day and time. And not only was it special to have family land, it was also necessary to have land to farm on so you could survive. And so it was a big deal when, through some set of circumstances, you lost your family land. 
And the kinsman redeemer, Leviticus tells us, had the responsibility of going back and getting the land, buying the land, purchasing the land to keep it in the family. That was one responsibility of a kinsman redeemer. Here's another responsibility. It was to protect family members. Over in Leviticus 25, 47-49, we read that if a family member became poor, and because of their poverty and desperation, they had to sell themselves into slavery to pay off a debt, the, the redeemer, the goel, was to go and buy back the person from slavery. He was to purchase their freedom so they would no longer have to be a slave. So the, the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer, was watching out over the family. And, and if a family member got into trouble, they would go and, and get that family, purchase that family member from slavery. They would even, Numbers 20, or 35 tells us, they would even avenge a family member's murder. I mean, the, the redeemer had a big responsibility to watch over the family. But here's another huge responsibility of a kinsman redeemer. Not only were they to keep the, the land in the family and protect family members, they were to continue the family line. And this is where we get in to Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25 outlines what uh, scholars call Leverite marriage. And, and Leverite marriage is when a man would marry his brother's childless widow in order to have offspring. And when this woman had her first son, this son was counted as the son of the dead man, her deceased husband, so that her, her dead husband's name would continue on in Israel. And so a brother, and by the time of the judges, a, a, a relative could fulfill this role. A kinsman could come and marry a widow so that she could have a child, and that child could be counted as the son of her, her deceased husband so that his name could live on. So you say, wait, Wade, why did God give Israel these laws in Deuteronomy and Leviticus? Well, Warren Wiersbe says it like this. The purpose of these laws was to preserve the name and protect the property of families in Israel. God owned the land and didn't want it exploited by rich people who would take advantage of poor people and widows. When obeyed, these laws made sure that a dead man's family name did not die with him and that his property was not sold outside the tribe or clan. So God has some very specific reasons for giving us the laws of the kinsman redeemer. And so when Naomi hears Ruth say, I met a kind man, to, uh, kind man today named Boaz, she was thrilled. Because Naomi understood that Boaz could potentially be their kinsman redeemer. He could marry Ruth, and Ruth could have a child by him, and the name of her dead son, Naomi's dead son, could live on. The name of Ruth's dead husband could live on, and he could protect their family land and family holdings and provide for these two widows. She understood that Boaz could be the kinsman redeemer. There was a man, Naomi knew, that could keep the name of her dead son living, and a man that could greatly help them. And Boaz was that man. Now, here's the deal. Not just anybody could be a kinsman redeemer. Not only were there some definite requirements for a kinsman redeemer to follow, uh, I'm sorry, some responsibilities for a kinsman redeemer to follow, there were some requirements that a kinsman redeemer had to have. So not anybody could be a kinsman redeemer. So let me just walk you through quickly the requirements to be a kinsman redeemer. First of all, you must be a blood relative to be a kinsman redeemer. You had to be related to the family. You had to be a kinsman to be able to fulfill this role and obligation. Look what it says over in 
Ruth chapter 2, verse 20. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours. He's related by blood. So he could be, she says, one of our redeemers. Had to be a blood relative. And so that's the first requirement. Boaz fit the bill. He was related to Naomi and her family. Also, the kinsman redeemer was required to be able to redeem. So they had to be able to do what the responsibilities had for them to do. They had to have the financial wherewithal to you know, keep family land in the family and to provide for widows and all of that. They had to be able to be a kinsman redeemer. Look what it says down in Ruth chapter 3, verse 12. This chapter is interesting because Naomi gives Ruth some instructions as a way to encounter Boaz again, and she's hoping that some sparks will fly, that there'll be a romance that, that springs up between Boaz and Ruth so that he will want to marry her and, and, and be their kinsman redeemer. So she gives, Naomi gives Ruth some instructions to go back and, 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 and talk to Boaz. And look what happens in verse 12. He says to to Ruth, Now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. And this is where we get to the uh uh-oh part of the story. Because as we read our, our way through Ruth, we're cheering for Ruth and Boaz to fall in love, right? If you've read the book before, you're like, oh, this is such a great story. And Ruth and Boaz are going to fall in love. He's going to be their kinsman redeemer. But on the night that they had this encounter, Boaz says, well, there's another relative that's a little bit closer to Naomi than I am. He has the first right of refusal. And we go, oh, no. And in chapter 4, we see Boaz talk to this relative at, a, at an official meeting. Look what it says over in chapter 4, verse 4. Boaz sang to this closer relative. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, uh, tell you of, back up to verse 3. He said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Bide in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. If you will not, uh, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, this closer relative says, I will redeem it, and our heart sinks. Boaz has the ability. He tells Ruth, hey, listen, if he turns it down, I'll be your redeemer. He has the ability, the, the, the financial wherewithal to take this family into his home and provide for Naomi and provide for Ruth and watch over them and keep the, the land in the family. He has the ability, but also this other relative has the ability. He tells him the story. Elimelech died, his, his widow's here, and the land's out there, and a, a, a kinsman needs to redeem it to keep it in the family. And this closer relative says, okay, I can do it. And we go, man, I was hoping that Ruth and Boaz would fall in love. And here's this other guy, he's not even named, and, and he's going he's gonna to get to be the kinsman redeemer. But there's a third requirement to be a kinsman redeemer. Not only did you have to be a, a, a blood relative, and not only did you have to be able to provide, the third requirement is important. A kinsman redeemer must be willing to redeem. 
must be willing to redeem. Now, this closer relative is willing, right? Until he gets a little bit more information. Look what it says back in chapter 4. He says, I will redeem it. So Boaz said, well, there's a little bit more you need to know. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. So he's saying, hey, listen, the land comes with a wife. You just need to understand that, that it's not just land. You're, you're going to get a wife out of this deal, too. And we don't know the man's situation, but that doesn't sit well with him. Look what it says in verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And so, when this closer relative hears that there's a wife involved in the transaction, not only would he buy back land, he would take Ruth into his home. She would be his wife. He would provide for her. He says, you know what? I'm able, but I'm not willing to do that. But you know who was willing? Boaz was willing. Boaz was a blood relative. He had the the financial situation in order to provide for this family, Naomi and Ruth, and to watch over the land and keep it in the family. But he was also willing to redeem. So let me just sum it up like this. Boaz, driven by his love for Ruth, joyfully took on the role of kinsman redeemer. Boaz, driven by his love for Ruth, joyfully took on the role of kinsman redeemer. Hallmark Channel has nothing on this story. Can I get an amen? It's a great story. It really is. It's a love story. It's powerful. I love it. But here's the deal. A kinsman redeemer named Boaz came from Bethlehem. This all took place in Bethlehem. But here's what I want to say to you this morning. Our kinsman redeemer came from Bethlehem. Our kinsman redeemer came from Bethlehem. You see, Jesus is the one who redeems us from our sin. In other words, Jesus paid the price that our sin deserves. He shed his blood so that we could be set free from our sin and have life eternal and life abundant. So Jesus is the one who redeems us from our sin. I believe that Boaz is an Old Testament picture or type of Jesus. In other words, when you read about Boaz, you start thinking about another redeemer, don't you? You start thinking about the great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Say, wait a minute, Wade, wait a minute. If you're going to say that Jesus is our kinsman Redeemer, there are some requirements, right? I mean, Boaz had to meet some requirements. Does Jesus meet those requirements? Does Jesus have uh, the requirements fulfilled to be our kinsman Redeemer? Well, let's just walk through them. First of all, to be a kinsman Redeemer, you have to be a blood relative. Is Jesus our relative? Is he one of us? Is he human? So he could die for humans and pay the price for humans? The answer is yes. That's what we are celebrating this time of year. Jesus Christ, who has existed forever in eternity, left the splendor and glory of heaven and came to earth born of the Virgin Mary. And in that, he was taking on humanity, taking on human flesh, fully God, fully man. He became one of us. So he could die for us. He became one of us so that he could be our redeemer. And don't just take my word for it. Look over in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Look what it says in verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. Love this passage. 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, humanity, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus took on flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, watch this, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to take on humanity so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So for Jesus to die for humanity, he had to become human. He had to be our, our relative. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas time. Not just this babe in a manger, but Jesus Christ, eternal God, taking on humanity for you and for me. And so the first requirement must be a blood relative. Jesus fits the bill, right? To be a kinsman redeemer. But remember the second requirement? The, the kinsman redeemer must be able to redeem. Must be able to redeem. Is Jesus Christ able to save? Oh, look with me in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Look what it says in verse 23. The former priests, speaking of the Old Testament sacrificial system, they ministered in, in that. The former priests were, made, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. In other words, a priest couldn't be a priest forever because they died. They need someone to replace them. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. In other words, Jesus Christ can be our priest, our mediator between God and man forever because he's defeated death. He will live forever, right? So look at the implication in the next verse. Verse 25, consequently, I love this, he is able to save to the uttermost. I love that. He is able to save to the uttermost. To be a kinsman redeemer, you had to be a blood relative, and you had to be able to redeem. Is Jesus Christ able to save sinners? The Bible says in a resounding way, he is able able to save to the uttermost. Amen? So Jesus Christ is our relative. He's human. He took on human flesh, fully God, fully man. He's able to save, but remember the third requirement. This is big. A kinsman redeemer had to be willing to save. And that's where this message takes on a a personal application. Because we may have someone sitting in this room today and you're thinking, God doesn't want to save me. He may save others. He doesn't want to save me. My life is ruined. I am far from God. Surely God doesn't love me. And, And so you are here really asking the question, is Jesus willing to save me? Well, the Bible gives us the answer to that question. Over in John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Listen, I lay down my life for the sheep. And then Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own initiative. Jesus chose to leave heaven and come to earth and live among us and experience rejection and mocking and mistreatment, and suffering, and death, 
for you and for me because he wants to save us. He desires to save He laid down his life of his own initiative because not only is he able to save, listen to me, friend, he is willing to save. He loves you. So why would Jesus be willing to lay down his life for me? 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Jesus Christ is willing to save because he loves you. He loves you. The cross is the supreme demonstration of the love of God for you. It says over in Romans 5, 8 that he demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so... Is Jesus qualified to be a kinsman redeemer? He's our relative, right? He took on human flesh. He's able to save to the uttermost. And he is willing. He loves you. So Jesus is eminently qualified, the only one qualified to be our kinsman redeemer, the one that redeems us from sin. So let me say it like this. Jesus driven by his love for us, joyfully became our kinsman redeemer. Ruth, I mean, sorry, Boaz, driven by his love for Ruth, became her kinsman redeemer. Jesus, driven by his love for us, became our kinsman redeemer. Here's what that means. Anyone that places their faith in Christ alone will experience his wonderful redemption from sin. I read a story about a little boy that got a a model boat set. And this was a very intricate sailboat that he was building. He got the little pieces of wood and the glue. And he spent so much time putting this, this boat together. And he, he just loved the boat. And one day he decided to go out and, and, and sail it in a little creek behind his house. And he went down to the little creek and he put it in the creek. And the current got a hold of the boat and it went around a curve and he, he lost sight of it and he, couldn't, he lost his boat. He was very distraught. He lost his boat. The boat he spent so much time making, it was gone. A few days later, he was walking down the street and he looked in the store of a, a window of a store there on the street and he saw the boat that he had made. Someone had made it and, or found it and took it, taken it back, or taken it to the storekeeper and the storekeeper, I guess, bought it and put it in his, his shop and it was for sale. The little boy told him the story, but the shop owner was not going to give him the boat. He said, it's for sale. So the little boy runs back home. He goes to his piggy bank. He gets some money. He runs back to the store owner, and he buys the boat that he had made. And he holds that boat in his hands. He said, you're twice mine. I made you, and now... I've bought you. Can I tell you this? God made you. And he made me. And he knows that in our sinful nature, we have rebelled against him. And we are sinners separated from God. But God loves us, so he sent his son to pay the price for our sin, to die in our place so that we can be bought, we can be redeemed and reconciled to God. Listen to me. If you are a Christian this morning, here's what God could say to you. I made you and I've bought you because I love you. And so, point number one, 
a kinsman redeemer came from Bethlehem. His name was Boaz. And our kinsman redeemer was born in Bethlehem. His name is Jesus. Which leads me to the second last point. Not only did a kinsman redeemer come from Bethlehem, a king came from Bethlehem. A king came from Bethlehem. This story closes with a genealogy, which is an odd way to end a love story, isn't it? It's such, so, so powerful and romantic. and all, you know, It's a great story, and at the very end, there's a genealogy. And that just seems like an unusual way to end a story. Why is the genealogy here? Well, the writer intends, by adding this genealogy, to, to demonstrate the significance of the resolution of the story. The end of the story provides an integral link in the family line that would lead two generations later to a king, to a boy named David. So what the writer is doing here in Ruth is he's trying to show us the greater significance of the character's decisions and actions. In other words, this story about Ruth and Boaz and Naomi in Bethlehem is not just some random story of some random family that we're just told about so we can say, oh, that's a nice story. There's something bigger happening here. God is using all of this story, this love story in his providence to accomplish a very specific purpose. And we see that when we begin to look at the genealogy more carefully. You see, this genealogy concerns a royal lineage. It's about royalty. And we know that because of what it says in verse 18. Look back with me, Ruth chapter 4. Ruth 4 verse 18. The Bible says, Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Abinadab. Now, it starts with Perez. Who in the world was Perez? Well, if we go back to Genesis, we see uh, that Perez was a son of Judah. A son of Judah. And here's why that's significant. Over in Genesis 49, when Jacob is pronouncing a patriarchal blessing on his 12 sons, many of these blessings are prophetic in nature, he says something interesting about his son named Judah. Here's what he says in Genesis 49. He says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. To him shall be the obedience of the people. So here's what Jacob is pronouncing over Judah. He's saying, From your lineage will come royalty. So right away we see that this lineage goes back to Judah, which deals with royal lineage. And and this point is really driven home by looking at the end of the genealogy. Do you notice what it said? Verse 20, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, or Salmon, however you want to say that. Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered who? David. Now, if we fast forward to 1 Samuel, we remember the story, don't we? Saul was anointed the first king of Israel, and he was a failure. He rebelled against God. And so God decided to anoint the second king of Israel. And he told his prophet Samuel, I want you to go to Jesse's household in Bethlehem, and I want you to choose the son I tell you is the one to be the next king. So he goes, and, and Jesse lines up all of his older sons, tall, handsome, strong, And Samuel walks up to each son, and God says, this isn't the one. 
Next son, the sin the one. Next son, sin the one. He gets to the end of the sons that were there in the household, and God hasn't chosen any of them. And, and, and Samuel says in desperation, Jesse, have I seen all of your sons? And Jesse says, well, there's one other son, little David. He's out, you know, tending sheep. And he said, well, bring him. And David comes back to the house, and God says, this is the one. This is the man after my own heart. And Samuel anoints David to be the next king of Israel. A king in Bethlehem. A king came from Bethlehem. So it starts with Judah, the royal lineage. It ends with David, who was a great king. Now you say, wait, what in the world does that have to do with Jesus? A king came from Bethlehem, David. But here's the deal. Our king came from Bethlehem. You see, through the line of King David would come a forever king. God was meeting with David at one time when he was a king. And here's what the Lord said to David. I'm going to send through your lineage a king who will reign forever and ever and ever. He says in 2 Samuel 7, 16, Your house, your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now how in the world is that promise to David fulfilled? Because if you go to Israel right now, there's no king ruling from the lineage of David. So did God, did God drop the ball? Did God not keep his promise? How did God keep this promise that someone from David's lineage would rule forever? Well, the answer is Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise to David. Turn to Acts 2 very quickly. We're almost done, but turn to Acts chapter 2. I want to show you this. So awesome to see how it all fits together. Acts chapter 2, this is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost in the temple. In verse 25, he's quoting David here from the psalm. He says, For David says concerning him, the Messiah, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So the question is, who is David talking about in Psalm 16? We'll look in the next verse. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. So he's saying he could have been talking about himself because he says you won't let your Holy One see corruption. And David's dead. His body turned back to dust. So Psalm 16 could be referring to David. Who's it referring to? Look what he says. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So here's what he's saying. In Psalm 16, David was talking prophetically about Jesus who would defeat death, who would live forever, and thereby reign forever. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise made to David. Jesus, from the lineage of David, you can follow his lineage in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus, from the lineage of David, born in Bethlehem just like David was, is not only a king, he is the king of kings. Now, now, very quickly, what does that mean for us in this room? What does it mean that Jesus is the forever king? 
who has taken his right, rightful place as Lord of everything and will be there forever. What does that mean for you and me? Here's what it means. We are to joyfully submit to Jesus as our king. You see, Christmas is not just about a babe in a manger. Christmas is about ultimately a conquering king. And Jesus is worthy of our allegiance. Jesus is worthy of our surrender. He's the forever king from the lineage of David. He deserves everything we have to give, right? So we're to joyfully submit to Jesus as our king. So here's what I want you to see. That was my son, by the way. See you, Connor. Here's what I want you to see. A kinsman redeemer came from Bethlehem. His name was Boaz. Guess what? Our kinsman redeemer, Jesus, came from Bethlehem. A king came from Bethlehem. His name was David. And from his lineage comes the forever king, our king, Jesus, also born in Bethlehem. Here's the point. The town of Bethlehem magnifies Jesus' role as our Redeemer and King. The town of Bethlehem, that connection with Ruth, connection with David, the town of Bethlehem magnifies Jesus' role as our Redeemer and King. So let me say it like this. Jesus is our Redeemer and our Ruler. He is our kinsman and our King. He is our Messiah and our Monarch. Our hope and our head. Our liberator and our Lord. Our savior and our sovereign. That's who Jesus is. And guess what? He was born in the little town of Bethlehem. 